Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz pianist Mike Jones. Right out of Buffalo, New York, he's living in Las Vegas these days, and he's been at this jazz gigging thing for a long time. These days he's promoting his very nice 2016 CD called Roaring, and it's already charting very well. Author Neil Gaiman said that he has magic fingers, and that could have led to his long-running Vegas gig with Penn and Teller. He does all the music for their shows these days, and he's done it for a long time. In the early years, he got some good advice from legend Oscar Peterson on going to the Berklee College of Music in Boston. Mike is full of great stories, heart, and jazz insights. Get to know Mike and dig this interview, my friends. I'm fine. Everything's exciting here in Vegas. Oh, <laughs> every day, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a new adventure. It's a permanent. I, I call Vegas the world's largest cruise ship stranded in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way of putting it, man. You know, it's the kind of city that uh, Penn and Teller can do 250 nights a year in a show and have a different crowd every night. <laughs> that's, that's the key. That is the key right yeah, there, for yeah. sure. For sure. Well, uh, th- thanks for taking some time out for me today, man. I appreciate it. Oh, oh I'm happy to. I, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm excited about the CD and stuff. So, I don't know how, how it's doing in terms. of, I mean, it comes out next Friday. It was an iTunes exclusive. It came out last Friday, and uh, shockingly, it went up to number ten on their on their top forty list. Right on. <laughs> I was shocked. I mean, you know, I'm I'm hopeful that I can get some some gigs when Penn and Teller are off. And I'm, you know, I'm. It's getting tiring hearing I've never heard of you. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So, well, you uh, know what they say: any buzz is good buzz. That's for sure, man. Right. Right. You know? Right. So you're 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 in Kansas City. I'm in Kansas City proper, the home of Charlie Parker. Excellent. Excellent. He was good. You know. Oh my <laughs> God. Like, you I, know that. You know, I'll tell you one thing. Doing this, being somebody that interviews and has my own jazz radio show, I know the profound impact that Charlie Parker has had on the world of not only Kansas City but jazz. But when I look at, like, music overall, he is always Mm -hmm. the first person that people mention as the one that really showed them the jazz light or still blows their minds. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, because it was he was like somebody from outer space. You know what I mean? Yeah. He just appeared, uh, you know, full, I mean, you know, I, well, I read the Stanley Crouch book and it was mostly fiction, but, um, (laughs) uh, from what I understand, but it, you know, it's still a good book, but I mean, you know, nobody was thinking this way, uh, except as I often point out to people, because I'm, I'm, I'm biased, but, you know, the only person thinking and playing those kind of harmonies was, was, uh, was Art Tatum, you know? I mean, his harmonic sense, Art Tatum's harmonic sense was like 30 years ahead of his time. But yeah. but Bird, you know, the phrasing and the, everything else that he came up with was, was just, it's, it was, it's unbelievable. I mean, you know, and, and, and it's still, I don't care what anyone says. There has been no real advancement on that. You know what I yeah. mean? I Absolutely. mean, there have been different styles of jazz that have come along and there have been different, you know, there's obviously different movements and different ideas and everyone's got their own voice and, all that, but I mean that that was like, oh well, this is this is what you do, and then everything yeah. else is sort of sprung from that, you know. But there hasn't been another like completely earth-shattering split between swing and bebop it has never happened again, you know. I think we've kind of covered what's been going on, and I'm going to get to Penn and Teller and that gig that you've had. But 
Let me go ahead and dive into what is ever-present right now, and it's this great new album you have, Roaring. Talk to me about what went into this and how you feel about it in the afterglow of its release. I'm, I'm really happy. I'm not a guy that is good at talking about uh, I'm promoting myself. You know what I mean? I, I'm learning how to do that because you, you have to, but I've been around for 30 years, and you know I, I did a, a number of records for uh, Hank O'Neill's label, Chiaroscuro, Hank gave the label away to a, a, a public uh, radio station a couple of years ago, well, many years ago now, and um, with the idea that they would keep it in print. But Hank had sort of done, it was done with the record business. Basically, I saw on Amazon that uh, Jeff Hamilton Trio had a new record out, and I looked at it and listened to it and loved it. And I said, "Oh, I see that's on this Capri Records out of Denver." And I went to their website, and I hit the Contact Us link, and I wrote Tom a note, and I said, uh, you know, I'm looking for a label. And he responded to me. He called me back. And he said, uh, he said I, yeah, I, I've heard of you. Uh, let's talk about what we, what we might want to do. And, you know, I'm, my strongest is solo piano playing, like in the Dave McKenna style. And, and uh, it's what I've spent many, many years doing, and I love it. But he was of the opinion, and rightly so, that um, solo piano records don't sell, and they hardly ever get played on the radio, and they don't get any attention. And I was aware of that fact after putting out five CDs for Hank that, you know, I got three reviews. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so what's hysterical is I put out the uh, Plays Well With Others record. The first record I did for, for Tom had Jeff Hamilton on drums and uh, Mike Garola on bass. And I uh, started, you know, got the number two on the Jazz Week chart, and it got a lot of attention. But what's hysterical is I read a review the other day of of Roaring that said, you know, Mike's debut record a couple of years ago <laughs> plays well with others. <laughs> and I was laughing about that because, you know, after 15 or 20 year career of, of putting out CDs, no, no one's ever heard of. <laughs> um, uh, I'm, I'm a new artist. So I'm hoping to be an overnight sensation at 53. But uh, but I'm, I I love the record. Uh, we were going to, um, you know, I was going to be on Broadway with Penn and Teller last summer. Tom had said, let's make a record while you're in New York with our New York rhythm section. And I thought, yeah, that's a great idea. You know, I know some guys from from when I was in New York. And um, and I said, maybe even like we'll go whole hog and get, the, you know, Peter and Kenny Washington or somebody, some guys like that. You know, really, really do that. About a month before we were gonna, we were sort of planning the date. He said, uh, "Go to uh, Google and Google Katie Thoreau and uh, tell me what you think of her." And I went and was impressed. I said, "You know, she's really, really great. You know, do I really need a 26-year-old woman on my on my record that I thought was going to be with big-name New York players?" And he said, "Well, you know." Uh, I believe Ken Poplowski was, was uh, who, who told uh, Tom. I know he was. He said he told Tom that uh, we should use, I should use Katie and Matt. So I, I think I sent a note to Ken and said, uh, you know, do I really need this woman on my record? And he, and he wrote back, yes, you do. Um, and uh, so uh, we show up at the studio, and I say okay, and we show. And, and Katie and Matt are, are um, engaged, and so they play together all the time. And Matt yeah. is sort of Jeff Hamilton's understudy. Um, yeah. 
so I knew I would like his playing. And um, so we show up, we show up uh, at the studio, and she pulls the bass out, and she runs this little, does this run up and down the the, the fretboard, and it's just this gorgeous tone, this big fat Ray Brown sound that I love, and. I said, man, that, that sounds great. And she sort of holds the bass away from her and looks at it and says, yeah, they, they set these up nice for me. It's a rental. <laughs> it wasn't even her <laughs> instrument. You know? <laughs> and, and I mean, to give you an idea of how quickly it came together, um, there's a track on the record, uh, I Can't Believe That You're In Love With Me. It literally is the first thing we played together. I just counted it off and we started. You know? And, and you know, they were just so much fun to work with and and swung so hard that, you know, I I could just relax. I mean, the problem with doing a record with Jeff Hamilton is he's Jeff Hamilton. You yeah. know, you get the benefit of the greatest jazz drummer in the world who's played with every one of my heroes who, you know, I when, when I was when I was 15 or 16, I bought a copy of the Montreux Alexander album and. I wore out two vinyl copies of it and then yeah. bought it on CD when CDs were invented. But, um, so, you know, and Jeff obviously is the drummer on that. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I, 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 had, uh, uh, I, I, yeah, obviously I was a huge Oscar Peterson fan and I hung out a little bit with him and I, I look and Jeff's playing for Oscar and Jeff's playing for Ella Fitzgerald and Jeff's playing for everybody in the world, you know? And so the problem with making a record with Jeff is you get the dream of playing with this unbelievable drummer, but you think to yourself, well, what can I possibly play that he hasn't heard? Gene Harris, Monty Alexander, Oscar Peterson, Tommy Flanagan. You know what I mean? You just run down the, the list of every great jazz piano player that he's played with. And yeah. so I was nervous as all hell making that record because I'm thinking, what am I going to play that he's going to enjoy? So, but I obviously it worked out well, and we turned out to be, you know, we're we're very good friends, and he really likes liked it. I, and so, um, I heard from an independent third party that he he really enjoyed playing with me. So, I, I guess he wasn't just being polite. <laughs> but you know, that's how nervous I was. This record, I could just go in and do whatever I wanted, knowing that the sound, the the, the rhythm section was there, and going to kill it. And I wasn't that there wasn't that intimidation factor. You know what I mean? Of playing with a, a name that everyone knows. And sub, so subsequently, it was much more relaxed on my on my behalf. And, you know, we, we made the record like in four hours with a break for lunch, you know. Um, and uh, I, I, almost everything is the first take. Well, you know, I'm, 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 I'm kind of a firm believer that, you know, one or two takes of anything is, is all you should need if you're a professional musician. You know what yeah. you want to say, the whole spontaneity comes out in, in those things. I mean, if you've got a super complicated arrangement where you're, you know, even working with guys, you know, and, and you need, you need three or four rehearsals, that's a different thing. Even then, you know, you do the rehearsals and then when you get to the, the studio, you do it once or twice and you have it, you know, because once you get into take four and five, you're, you're trying to remember what you played in the first take that you liked. And so there's no spontaneity. You know, yeah. it just becomes, you know, I want to make sure I get this in. And then, you know, and so, you know, that was the basic idea of making the record. For for the idea of making all 1920 songs, there's sort of a two-part uh, idea behind that, which was 
I'm always, you know, I love Sonny Rollins, and I don't think anyone that has half a brain doesn't. I love the stuff that he did in the late 50s, uh, The Sound of Sonny and those records, where he would just, every every album or so, he'd throw in one or two of these old vintage 1920s tunes, like Tootsie Goodbye or I Found a New Baby and stuff like that. And, you know, not 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 in an ironic way necessarily, but just push them to the absolute edge of what they could be. And what I liked about it was he was he was making sure that they were seen as something that could have been written yesterday. You know what I mean? He wasn't yeah. playing them in an old timey way and you know vododiodo way. He was playing the hell out of them in 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 a you know really you know really current. I mean, you listen to those records from 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 that era and you know they're they're every bit as fresh as they are as 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 you know today as they were then and um and so that always was like something that was in the back of my mind i grew up with two player pianos in my house i've always had this fascination with you know tin pan alley songs and you know that kind of weird i mean there's a whole there's uh, there's thousands of of songs written and played and were in people's homes back then that have because they didn't become standards, just faded away completely. Now, yeah. on this record, I picked the most easily recognizable tunes from that era because I wanted to have a connection with, with you know, someone say, oh, yeah, I heard that song before, you know. But at some point in my life, I want to do a record of all these weird little tunes from piano rolls that I learned growing up, like uh, uh, My Cuties Do It 222 Today and uh, Last Night on the Back Porch and, uh, you know, Mama goes where Papa goes, or Papa don't go out tonight. You know these weird little. I mean, they just made them constantly. Twenties. You know, I, there was an insane amount of American homes that had player pianos in. They were yeah. they were like the stereos of of of, of today. You know, and um, so they there was this constant need for product, and they and they wrote all these songs that uh, that never went past them. And some of them are actually good. I mean, you know, a lot of them are just goofy, but, uh, you know, so, so that was, you know, so I, that was all one aspect of it. The other aspect was that I, I, my, my dad passed away last year at 88 and he loved that era of music, you know, for him, jazz was Louis Armstrong and, 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 uh, Frankie Trumbauer and, and, you know, uh, that era. I mean, he was, he was, he was, that music was old when he was a kid, you know? I mean, my my dad was born in twenty seven, so it, it's. It, uh, but he still that was you know he when he when he went to New York in the forties he would go to Eddie Condon's and he would go to Jimmy Ryan's and see the trad guys you know and that's what he loved so you know it was just sort of a nod to him as well as a, a you know I knew that you know I knew he knew all those songs and loved them all and and as a matter of fact the the, the Irving Berlin song I'll see you in CUBA. That was a song that I that we had the piano roll in my house when I was growing up. Wow. So, um, and that's from I think 1920. But you know, so that's 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 the idea. But I'm real happy with it, and I'm I'm thinking it's a good record. You know, I mean, I can't judge. I know I'm a competent musician, but I try to play, you know, pleasingly. And um, I wanted to dig in a little more to them and play a little more angular things that I that I don't. I mean. No, you know, it's easy. The easiest thing for me is to just 
do what I do in the Penn and Teller show at the beginning, which is play this real high energy 10,000 notes a song because people are there to get jacked up to see a magic show. So my gig with Penn and Teller doesn't include any ballads, you know, Um, I'm there for people to find their, I play for an hour before the show and then I play all the music in the show. But, you know, it's so it's easy to get in that trap of just chops, chops, chops. And I really wanted to make this a little more intimate and a little less look at me, you know what I mean? Um, And play with the bass player and drummer a little bit more and, just and so you know so that's that's what I was thinking. Right on. So it mentions in the liners here that Neil Gaiman says that you have magic jazz fingers. What do you think about that? It's it's, it's very nice. I mean, going back, I I I don't know if you're really familiar with Dave McKenna. Okay, well Dave, you know Dave invented a way to play the piano that no one else had done, which was play a walking bass line comp and solo at the same time. He, when he came around in the mid-50s, there was the mainstream guys that, that went the way of, of, you know, Teddy Wilson, R. Tatum, Teddy Wilson, Oscar Peterson, that that school. Then there were, you know, the guys that went through Bud and, uh, and, and you know, and then eventually sort of, in my mind anyways, morphed into the school of, of Bill Evans and that kind of stuff. And, you know, there were two guys that you couldn't even sort of classify and and one was Errol Garner and one was Dave McKenna. You don't hear a lot of Errol Garner impersonators. Everyone throws in a few block chord passages as sort of a nod to him and they're playing, you know. But there, there's nobody really doing it because it it didn't have a life after him. But, man, you listen to his stuff now, and again, it's it's just all this energy and, and great playing. And, and Dave sort of, out of necessity fashion this completely insane idea of 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 playing the walking bass line, comping and soloing all at the same time. I heard him I was at Berkeley in Boston. He was playing at the Copley Plaza Hotel. And I had never heard of him. My dad actually I, I called my dad and I said, There's this guy Dave McKenna playing. He said, Oh yeah, you gotta go see him. And I walked in and here's a guy playing T for two, like in all twelve keys at this breakneck tempo, playing the bass line, soloing, comping, everything. just And it reminded me of a player piano, because not a lot of people care or know this, but you know, player pianos were double-tracked, just like LPs and stuff. They would, they would, put, you know, they would put all the notes that they wanted in, because it was mechanical. So you know, you're looking at a player piano, and a lot of times, 15 notes are being played on the piano at once. And since you only have 10 fingers, that's hard to do. Yeah. But I heard Dave, and it sounded almost like a player piano. I mean, the fullness. I mean, I couldn't believe what he was doing. And I look over, and you know, he's listening to the Red Sox game while he's doing this. You know, he's got a little, he's got a little earpiece in, and he's listening to the Sox game. So, you know, I ran up to the piano and I, oh, Mister McKenna, Mister McKenna, do you give lessons? And you know, he looked at me. He goes, I, why don't you leave me alone? I'm just trying to make a living here. You know, <laughs> but then I grew to be great friends with Dave and I locked myself in a practice room at Berkeley for eight hours every Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday and six hours, Monday, Wednesday and Friday for over a year to try and learn how to do it. So, you know, there's this everyone says, man, you sound like you got three hands. Oh, yeah. You know, and that's what I, I'm sure that's what Neil's alluding to, you know, that, yeah. um, you know, I try to, it, you know, I, I make it sound like more things are happening than just. I mean, I've had people walk up to me. Now, in the Penn & Teller show, my hands 
uh, you know, there's a big screen in the stage for the pre-show, and you can see me playing. But before they put that up there, people would come up to me to see if it was sort of a recording and I was just pretending to play. <laughs> really complimentary or really insulting. Um, but, um, you know, so I mean, that's what me. I mean, Neil is is a dear friend, and you know, strangely for a guy of his, oh well, maybe not strangely because I mean, you know, I mean, Neil's Neil's like my age, maybe a couple of years older. You know, for for him to have like, he just loves my playing. You know, it's I mean, he's a punker. You know what I mean? He's he's he, you know he's he's a guy that came up in the, in the seventies in England. You know. And um, there's no reason he should like it except that he's Neil Gaiman and he's incredibly cultured and incredibly brilliant and loves every kind of music. You know, I, I, it sort of shocked me when I first met him like 15 years ago and I gave him a CD just to be polite. And he sent me this note saying, I just love it. I play it all the time. You know, so. Yeah. Um, so that's that's good. Plus, you know, Neil is a guy that has a lot of fans. <laughs> yeah. So as I said. You know, I got David Silverman from The Simpsons to do the cover. Yeah. And Neil Gaiman to write the note. And I said, they don't even have to listen to the music. Just buy the CD. It's all it's very, Yeah, it's very attractive, man. It really is. But, you know, the one other thing that, that jumps out to me, too, is Oscar Peterson gave you advice and told you to go to Berkeley. What is it like to yeah. get advice from somebody that you admired so much? The deal was I got into a rehearsal uh, I was working with the uh, with the principal percussionist for the Buffalo Philharmonic, was a great drummer as well, jazz drummer, and and uh, he said, "Well, you want to come to the rehearsal?" And I said, "Well, yeah, you know." Um, and so I went over went over to to the rehearsal, and Oscar was playing with um, Whit Brown and Alan Dawson, uh, and Whit Brown was teaching at Berkeley. I think even Alan Dawson was teaching at Berkeley at the time, and Oscar was enthralled because he had just gotten his Bosendorfer piano and instead of delivering it to Mississauga, Ontario, where he lives, they had, he had them deliver it to Kleinhans Music Hall in Buffalo that day. So it was the first time he was playing it as, as you know, that it was his. And so instead of the rehearsal going for, you know, half an hour where they just ran down a couple songs, we spent about three hours there. And, you know, of course, Oscar said, ooh, sit down and play something. And, you know, I was scared to death, um, yeah, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and you know, I mean, literally, like, my hands were shaking. And um, and he said, oh, you sound really good. We're, he said, and, and we started talking, and he said, well, you should go to Berkeley. These guys teach at Berkeley, and it's it's a great jazz school. So the next day, I sent away for a uh, for a catalog and an application and the next semester i was there and oscar was i mean you know and then i i i did i I saw oscar a few more times and uh hung out with him and then i didn't see oscar for probably from 86 to maybe 99 so about you know he had the stroke and he was he was sort of you know uh out of commission but i hadn't seen him at least 10 years and I got this, um, I, you know, Hank O'Neill, who owned Chiaroscuro, also produced the Floating Jazz Festivals on the Norway and QE2. And I had done a few on the Norway and a few other ones uh, for him on other ships. He called me up and he said, we're going to do a big one on the QE2 because we're, we're not going to do it on the Norway anymore. And it's a transatlantic crossing. And he said, well, do you want to do it? And I said, of course. Uh, this was before I was with Penn & Teller. 
So he said, uh, great. So I get the lineup, and it's everyone that he could get for this big gala first gig on the, you know, it was just an all-star uh, cruise. So I go to, I go the first night, I go to play my set, and I look at the piano, I sit down at the piano, and sitting directly next to me, looking at my hands, is Oscar Peterson. Mm-hmm. And sitting next to him is Monty Alexander. Sitting next to him is Shirley Horn. Sitting wow. next to her is Tommy Flanagan. Sitting next to him is Junior Mance. Sitting next to him is uh, uh, Bill Charlap. Sitting next to him is Ted Rosenthal. Sitting next to him is, you know, I mean, it was just every piano player on the ship was there. Wow. Right? Because I guess I had gotten a little reputation from doing other cruises, and they knew these guys. And I I looked at them, and I sat down at the piano. I took one look at them, and I said, oh, no, no, no. And I got up and walked away from the piano. And, um, <laughs> and then after they laughed, I, I went back and sat down, and I started playing. And, you know, and as I, after I finished the first set, um, I was walking by Oscar and and he grabbed my arm. He was in his, he was in his scooter, you know, he grabbed my arm and he pulls me down and he says, you're taking no prisoners tonight, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and it was, you know, and it was so sweet. And I, you know, I was, I was really happy that he, he enjoyed it. But the, the story that I tell uh, of that cruise was I had never met Monty. And I was a huge Monty Alexander fan, as anyone should be. And um, and I'm walking down the hall the next day in the cruise. I'm just walking down towards towards my room, and Monty steps out into the hall. He gives me like his finger, like motioning me towards him, and I go into white hot panic. I'm like, oh my god, he's going to tell me I'm awful. What am I doing? You know, I, I should quit playing the piano. I mean, I didn't know what, you know, all these thoughts are going through my mind, right? And he pulls me aside and he says, look, Mike, you know, he's got that weird kind of jamaican accent. And he says, you've got to stop the self-deprecating stuff, man. And I said, <laughs> what? He said, you're one of us, man. There's only like two or three of us in the world that can really play the piano, man. And you're one of us. And you've got wow. to stop this talking down about yourself. And I said... Monty, in 1977, I bought the Montreux Jazz album. I played two <laughs> copies of it. I wore them out, and it was the second CD I bought when CDs were invented. Allow me to be a little self-deprecating in your presence. And, and he said, no, man, you can't do that. Stop it. And I said, I said <laughs> so, you know, so it was really funny. And then my, then my head wouldn't fit through the doors of the cruise ship, you know. Um, <laughs> Uh, that, 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 that compliment lasted me like a year and a half. And, My um, God, that's but, a great story. But then, well, what's really funny is flash forward to about uh, three, four weeks ago, Monty is playing out at uh, in, in Vegas here at the Smith Center, and he's got Jeff Hamilton with him. And you know, I wasn't going to miss that. And luckily, they were playing a Friday night, which we don't have. We we, we have Thursday and Friday dark. So I go and and I know I know Monty's wife Katerina a little bit, and I said, look. Um, I know you guys, I know your schedule, but if you want, if you have an extra day and you want to come and see Penn and Teller, I'd love to get you guys tickets. She surprisingly said, we'd love to come. I go to the gig on Friday night and I, you know, I, I see Jeff and I see Monty and, uh, you know, they were just killing. Right now they're at, I wish I was, I, I almost went up to Vail, Colorado last night because they're playing last night and tonight at the Vail Jazz Festival. Right. Um 
But uh, but anyways, uh, be that as it may, he he says to me, um, uh, you know, I, he says, well, he was real sweet after the show. He goes, oh man, my my favorite piano player, you know, and all this nice stuff. And um, so then uh, so then um, he comes to the Penn and Teller show and he sees me do what I really do for them. And after the show, we, I brought him back to the green room to meet Penn and Teller, and they they're hanging out. And he said, uh, I told him that story of, you know, because I figured what's the chances he remembers that. And he looks at his wife. I, I said, you know, you, you told me this. He, he looks at his wife and he says, see, I can be nice sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, but, uh, but he's, yeah, he, I mean, just the sweetest guy. And, you know, and Jeff is like, I mean, Jeff is Jeff. I mean, he's just a monster. And, and uh, he, yeah, but they're doing, they were at Vail, they were doing the, they were doing, a, it was him, it was him, Jeff, and John Clayton doing the 40th anniversary of the Montreux Jazz album, of all things. So I would have loved to have seen that, but, but he's playing better than ever, and he's just wonderful, wonderful guy. So, anyways, as you can tell, I, I tend to babble on, so. Oh, it's good. No, it's good. I, no, it's good. In fact, I, I, one thing that we keep kind of hitting on a little bit is your relationship with Penn and Teller. Talk to me about getting discovered by Penn when you were at the Las Vegas Resort and, and how this whole relationship began. <laughs> That's, I was I was discovered. Um, no. <laughs> Penn, as, as, as I said, right after, right after my fifth CD came out, I got yeah, discovered. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, Penn, no, no. It's a, that's an even crazier story, and it's it's absolutely all this stuff is obviously absolutely true. But this is a nut story. There's there's a great close up magician named Mike Close, and in the magic world, he is a superstar. He wrote the most important books on close up magic technique uh, of the past forty years. He wrote the workers' books, and every young music, magician buys these books and learns from them. He edits the magic magazine for the Society of American Magicians. Anyways, Mike Close is working a gig here in Vegas uh, at the Houdini Lounge in the Monte Carlo where Lance Burton was appearing. And he would play a few songs and then he would go do close-up magic at tables for people. And it was a wonderful gig. And he was really just wonderful. So Mike Close gets a $100 tip. And he decides to stop over at Borders and buy a few CDs. And one of the CDs he buys is an Oscar Peterson CD called On the Town with the Oscar Peterson Trio. It was one of those Verve Master Edition repackaging that came out in, well, I don't know, late 90s, uh, early 2000s, whatever. And, you know, I, I don't know if you remember that series, but they did. Yeah. They had a lot of great Verve releases back to back with uh, Ellington and Hodges and he opens up the liner notes of that CD, and um, they're all about me. Because uh, Neil Tesser, who's a good buddy of mine from Chicago, who got me the original intro to get the gig at the Green Mill that I do every year, who was I met, by the way, going back to one of the cruises. Neil was on covering uh, the cruise for Jazz Times Magazine, and that's how I met him. Anyways, we got to be good friends. And he called me up one day and he said, look, you, you know Oscar better than anybody. What hasn't been discussed that I can talk about in his liner notes? I've got to do these notes for this record. And um, I said, his arranging, the arrangements, listen to the arrangements, you know, the, the four key changes and the, 
you know, and in, in, in the temple, you know, the, the all that stuff. And I went on and on about it. And so the, the CD comes out, and the liner notes are mostly about me commenting on Oscar instead of like one or two quotes from me. They're like Mike Jones, the heir apparent to Oscar Peterson, and all this stuff, you know. So yeah. Mike Close buys this CD, reads about me, and says I li- says I live in Las Vegas. This is before I was with Penn and Teller. So he calls the musicians' union and calls up uh, Frank Leone and says, uh, "Hey, uh, I want to see this guy, and do you have a phone number for him?" So I get a phone call one afternoon, and I'm playing, by the way, the worst gig of my life. I'm playing in the Eiffel Tower restaurant while people, you know, uh, ignore me completely. And it's five hours for less money than I made when I was 16 years old. But that's another whole story, which we won't get into. But I came out here to work with a singer, and unbelievably, the agent lied to us, and there was no gig when we got here. Um, so <laughs> then I learned a valuable lesson, which was when the when the entertainment director for the Bellagio, I filled in for a week in the lobby, got a lot of compliments, and the entertainment director came down and he said, you're the best piano player I've ever heard. I've n- I'd never hire you. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, he said, I don't want people paying any attention to the piano. He said, I want people to come in and say, look, a piano player. Oh, look, a Wheel of Fortune. He said, that's how much attention I want. Yeah. The piano player. So yeah. I was, I didn't know, so I, you know, I, I, I was going to move to Chicago or maybe back to New York, got this gig uh, at the Eiffel Tower for 150 bucks a night for five hours a night. And, you know, it was it was awful. But anyways, so he, he calls me up and he says, I want to see you play. Mike does. And I said, well, you can come any night if you want to pay 200 bucks for a piece of cold fish, you know, um, in a tourist restaurant. And he said, well, I'll be there. We're coming, down, we're coming tonight. So that night he walked in with Penn. Uh, Penn was very polite and gen- and, and he bought all my CDs, which was to me a big boon, because I think he gave me like $80 for four CDs. And um, and uh, I was ecstatic because I could eat that week. You know, I mean, it was a four, I was making 600 bucks a week in, in 2001. And, um, and uh, just to be polite, because I, I figured, you know, I might as well. Inv- he said, man, I just started playing bass. And so to be polite, I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm recording a new album, Next month, here in town, they're bringing up. I'm a Kauai artist, so they they were bringing up this Kauai EX nine and a half foot grand piano, this one hundred and fifty thousand dollar piano, and they were bringing it up for me to record on. And then Hank and, and and John Keel were coming out from New York City to record me. So just to be polite, I invited them to the recording, and I never ever in a million years thought they would show up. Yeah. And Penn showed up with about eight people. And we hung out a little bit, and he seemed like a decent guy. So then about three days later, he sends me an email, and he says, um, I'd like to hang out, you know, if, if you if, you know, when we're in town. We're on the road a lot, but, you know, I don't have a lot of friends in Vegas, and, and, uh, and uh, I, I really want to get into music more, and you know jazz, and I want to learn about it. And one thing about Penn and Teller both, when they want to learn about something, that they just immerse themselves in it. I said, uh, yeah, sure, whatever. You know, I kept it really casual because I figured to myself, I can't hang with this guy. Yeah. You know, this guy's a multimillionaire. He's probably the kind of guy that spends five grand on on booze in a in a strip club and stuff. You know. 
you know, I, I, I can't go out to dinner. You know, I can't afford a dinner with him. And, um, you know, I subsequently learned that he doesn't drink and he doesn't, you know, and he doesn't spend money. Um, you know, <laughs> so that was never an issue, you know. And, and so, and his mom had passed away and my mom passed away that next month. And so when I got back, he sent me a note and he said, look, let's go to lunch. And, um, and I said, okay. And we went to lunch and we had a lot in common and, uh, and he wanted to start having these little jazz jam sessions at his house with a couple of local musician guys, uh, Lon Bronson and a few other people. And, um, and he was, he had basically started taking upright bass lessons a year before. So we were doing that. We were learning, he was learning songs and trying to play and stuff. So then, you know, this was all in May and June. And then we started hanging out, uh, when they were in town and stuff and, you know, watching movies and just having fun in December, they were going out on the road, and um, I think it was the f- around uh, the, the second week of January, he called me from the road, which was unusual, you know. Uh, I thought maybe something happened at his house, and he wanted me to go over and check on it or something. And um, he calls me up one night, and he said, uh, we're going to be at the Rio full time, and I think we want to have you play in the show. And I said, what do, wow. you, what do you need a jazz piano player in a magic show for? And he said, well, he said, we want you to open the show. And I sa- he said, um, so, well, I want to play with you every night. And I said, you've been playing the bass for a little, you know, a year, Penn. Um, yeah. You really want to play on stage in front of 1,400 people a night? He's like, yeah, fuck it, it's my show. <laughs> and I said, okay, um, uh, I'll give it a try. So they were coming back in February. I, I subbed out my gig at the Eiffel Tower. And I went over and, and did their show, and they liked it so much, and I've been with them ever since. That's beautiful. Um, and, yeah, I've been, I mean, it started out with an hour in before the show, and Penn played 45 minutes with me, and I played the last 15 minutes myself. And then about three days into the gig, they said, well, do you think you could play the, the, the fire-eating music instead of us using a tape? And I said, sure. And so I started playing the fire-eating music. And then he said, oh, we got a new bit we're putting in. Do you think you want to write some some music for that? And I said, sure. And then, you know, and then now, I mean, basically, I play the entire show. That's um, wonderful. You know, I play between every trick in the show. And right now, there's six or seven tricks that I'm playing. The music is part of the trick. So, right on. Um, yeah, and it's been almost 15 years. So, uh, Very cool. It's a, it's, it's a lot of fun. You know, the beauty of... of, of all of these stories that you've woven together is you've answered a lot of questions, but I have one more that I want to ask you. Why do you sure. love jazz? I love jazz for so many reasons. It's the music I grew up with, um, although it's it's just as easy to say that I grew up with Led Zeppelin, too. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, but when, when I was listening to everyone rave about how great Jimmy Page was, I had heard Joe Pass. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sure. So I knew the difference, and I knew what what... But I grew up with jazz, and, I, and, and you know, I was six, seven years old when I heard my first Oscar Peterson record. And it's just a part of, of, of me. It's why I play the style of jazz that I play, even more specifically. Um, I could have easily gone the route of, you know, through Chick and Herbie like everyone else did at Berkeley when I was there, and Keith Jarrett, and, you know, and I mean... And there's, you know, that music is amazing, but it doesn't speak to me in the same way that, that, you know, 
mainstream, you know, bop and 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 swing stuff. Just it just it just makes you feel better. I mean, yeah. nobody went to a Fats Waller show and came out angry. No. You know what I mean? I mean, no. you know, and 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 there's there's certainly an artistic choice to be made that if you're going to be an angry young musician and you're going to, you know, talk about the strife that you go through in your music and but that's that's not what jazz is to me. What jazz is to me is making people feel better and enjoying it and having fun and listening to it and saying, man, he's playing his ass off, you know, and it's fun um, and it swings. And so that's, you know, that's the main reason. And the other reasons are that we're almost at the end of everyone that was alive that played this music in the first generation, first and second generation. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's a few guys left uh, that are now in their 80s and 90s. When you took, when you turned the radio on and you could hear Ben Webster playing on the radio as just the popular music of the day, that's all gone. And I just sort of think that somebody has to keep going. You know what I mean? Even in my own little way, that's very derivative and not as, you know, I mean, I like to think I have some original ideas, but... You know, the the biggest compliment I can get is that I remind people of, of, of Dave McKenna or I remind people of Oscar Peterson in terms of that spirit and that idea of that music. And, um, you know, I it's just it's so much jazz today is so overproduced and so sterile and so, you know, we got to time out the drums. You know what I mean? What are you yeah. talking about? The music should breathe. It yeah. should get a little faster and a little slower. That's what that's what that's what the drummer's doing. He's yeah. he's adding his own voice to it, you know? You don't need yeah. to sit there and dissect it on pro tools to make it even, you know? And so that you know, but those are just some of the reasons why. It's it's the music of my youth <laughs> and it's yeah. the music that I just love, you know. Yeah. I mean I could have gotten in a rock and roll band if I wanted to make money. You know? That's great. I, I I love that answer. I think that's kind of a great way to kind of wrap everything up. Mike, thank you for taking some time out for me today. Great story. Oh, my, my pleasure. Love the city. All right, Joe. Thank you so much, man. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Mike for his cool, his stories, and all of that great music. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit the neonjazz.blogspot.com for all things neon jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.